If you've got a Bible this morning, I would like you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. We are uh, a couple of weeks into a series on the book of Revelation, and I hope uh, this morning, uh, as we kind of continue in this series, I hope it's an encouragement to you. I pray it's a blessing, and I pray we learn together. Uh, this, is, this is not a small task uh, that we are undertaking to teach through the book of Revelation. Uh, I have no time uh, expiration set on this series. Uh, I'm anticipating at least a year and a half, if not two years, uh, to go through the book of Revelation. At the pace that we're going now, uh, we will probably get raptured out of here before we finish, and so you can rejoice in that. Uh, hey, we're still in Revelation, and the rapture's coming next. So, uh, But we this is actually our ninth week in this series, and so I know if you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, or maybe you're new this morning, we're jumping right in the middle of kind of a series that we're doing, but, but I think we can get us caught up to speed on the book of Revelation. Uh, this morning, we're going to enter into chapter 2, but before we enter into chapter 2, I want to just remind you of some of the things, not all of the things, that we've talked about up to this point. Uh, God is revealing this revelation to the Apostle John, and as, as God is revealing this to John, John is in a very specific place. As a matter of fact, in your notes, we want to, as a review, we want to talk about John's location during the revelation. Because John is in a very unique place. Now, we know historically that John is on the Isle of Patmos, and he's, he's exiled for, for the testimony of Christ and for the word of God's sake. He, he is suffering persecution physically, but he also is at a very unique place and location spiritually. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 1 and verse 10, John tells us, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. And so, and so John physically, 100 AD approximately, is on the Isle of Patmos in the Aegean Sea, but spiritually, the Bible says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And, and the Lord's day is not Sunday, and of course we say things like, well, every day is the Lord's day, and of course it is, but, but in the Bible, the Lord's day is the day of the Lord. And that's a very specific day. It's a very specific event that, that, that points to the millennial reign of Christ or the second coming of Christ. And so what's interesting is as we, as we review where we are in Revelation, John physically is on that Isle of Patmos, but spiritually God moved him forward in time to the day of the Lord. And, and and that's an important part for us to understand in the book of Revelation, because if we don't get that right, none of this book is going to make sense. But, and the reason that's important is because Jesus tells John, you're going to write some things that you have seen behind you. You're going to write some things that you are seeing presently. You're going to write some things that are to come future. Does that make sense? So the perspective, you guys ever you know, go to like a, you know, back in the day, if you ever went into like a, a mall, the big mall, and they would have like the, the information sign as you came in, and there would be the red dot, and it would say, you are, you are here. And if you know where you are, then you can read the rest of the map and figure out how to get to the Great American Cookie Company and get a cookie. You know what I'm talking about? In the mall. You guys don't eat cookies. Okay, well, God bless you. So once you know where you are, you can get to the place you want to get because your, your location is critical. And in John's and John's receiving of this revelation, it's critical that we place him exactly where God placed him in the spirit 
and on the Lord's day. That, that unlocks the book of Revelation for us. The day of the Lord is the second coming of Christ. And so God has moved him forward spiritually and prophetically in the future. And so from John's standpoint, this divides the book of Revelation into three parts. And, and Revelations chapter, chapter 1 through 3, Revelation 1 through 3, is going to be what John has seen. He's going to see the past. And that's going to point to the church age. And then John is literally standing on the day of the Lord. So that means that, that he's experiencing the end of the tribulation and the second coming of Christ. And then the things that are to come are the millennium and the new heaven and new earth. And again, listen, we, we study the Bible here. These are biblical things that you need to understand as a Christian. We're, we're not interested in just fluff sermons. We want to teach the Bible. These things are in the Bible. And so from John's standpoint, the book of Revelation can be divided into three parts. Revelation 1 to 3, the church age, Revelation 4 to 19, the tribulation, the second coming, Revelation 20 to 22, the future. And so we see John's location. Number two, we see John's instruction regarding the revelation. And again, if we were to go back to Revelation 1, verses 10 to 11, we see that John was on the, in the spirit on the Lord's day, and he heard behind him a great voice as the voice of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega. Now, who is that voice? It's Jesus Christ. He's the Alpha Omega. He's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. And Christ himself is telling John, what thou seest, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And again, this is important because John, John's location is key to understanding the book. Jesus Christ told John to write the book of Revelation in three sections. And again, I know this is, sounds like I'm saying the same thing, and I kind of am. He says, write the things that thou hast seen, past tense. Write the things that are, present tense. Write the things that shall be hereafter, future tense. And that's critically important for us to understand as we study the book of Revelation. And then number three, let me remind you that John wrote this letter to certain recipients. There were people that were to receive this letter. John's recipients regarding the revelation, according to Revelation 1 and verse 11, are seven churches. Seven churches. And then the Bible tells us which seven churches this letter went to. Now, let me just tell you this. In John's day, there were more than seven churches in existence. But for whatever reason, Christ wrote this letter of Revelation and sent it to these seven churches, the church of Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. If you're a student of the Bible, seven is the number of completion or perfection. And I think what we, we see in these seven churches are, are three applications. Number one, we know that historically, these seven churches are real churches. They're, they're real churches. They're not spiritual. They're, they're, they're real historical churches. Okay, Historically, this was a historical event that happened at a point in time and at a point in history and a point geographically in this world. So historically, this is true. Number two, devotionally, God shows us through these seven churches that these seven churches are types of churches that have existed from the book of Acts to the rapture of the church. And because God's perfect number is seven, well, there's probably only seven types of churches. Does that make sense? There's only seven types of churches. 
And each of those churches, as, as we study Revelation and we get into these seven churches, listen, each of those churches, they had struggles and they had things that they were doing right. Well, almost all of them had things they were doing right. And, and, and the point is, as we study those seven churches, we as a church can glean information and, and, and understanding from their experiences. Devotionally, we can make application to our own church because whatever plagued those seven churches is probably the same things that have plagued every church for the last 2,000 years. And, and the things that they did well, well, those are the things that we need to take note of because for the last 2,000 years, there's been churches that do some things right in God's eyes. Does that make sense? So devotionally, we can learn from these seven churches. Doctrinally, Specifically, what are these seven churches going to show us? Well, the, I think the application is twofold. One, we're going to get an entire overview of church history. As we study these seven churches, and this morning is just kind of our introduction into these seven churches. As John looks backwards from the vantage point of the day of the Lord, he's going to write what he has seen. In other words, he's going to write in past tense. And what he sees is seven churches. And if we were to take those seven churches, you could go from the book of Acts to the rapture of the church, and you would have an entire snapshot of church history. And I don't, I don't think I put the... Uh, next week I'll put in your notes kind of a breakdown of how each of those churches represent a number of years in church history leading up to the rapture of the church where Christ takes his bride home. So I think doctrinally, we're going to see an overview of church history, but I also want you to know there is a secondary doctrinal application, I believe, that, that is found in the book of Revelation, and I think it is in, in nature to the tribulation, because I think that these seven churches also point to something that's going to happen during the tribulation period. And again, man, we, we picked a big morning to talk about prophecy, didn't we? We're going to eat the meat of the Word of God and then eat the meat of lunch is, is what's going to happen this morning. And I hope you don't choke on it. Listen, I want you to understand that the type of statement I just made may lead to some confusion. I don't believe the body of Christ, the church, goes through the tribulation. As a matter of fact, I believe God clearly states over and over in His Word that God will call up His body of Christ before the tribulation uh, begins. But here's what's important we got to let God be true and every man a liar. That includes your pastor. And when we study the word church in the Bible, God does use the word church in one instance to de describe a group of people in the Old Testament. And that verse is in Acts chapter 7 and verse 38. And let me just read it to you. The Bible says, This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give us. And, and, and what's happening in Acts chapter 7 is there's a reference back to Moses and to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. And God calls the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, what does he call them? He calls them a church, where? In the wilderness. And, and, and let me just tell you, that's very interesting and, and God didn't make a mistake by using that word. He used the word church to describe a nation after their exodus from Egypt, during their wilderness wanderings, 
and preceding their entrance into Canaan. And, and by the way, the land of Canaan was their inheritance that God promised to the nation of Israel. It, it, it's what we would at this church call the kingdom of heaven, so to speak. And he called them a church. Well, that's very interesting. The word, the word church literally means a called out assembly, but it also means other things. It, it, it does reference the body of Christ. It does reference those that are saved by the gospel. You're, you're not Jew or Gentile anymore. You're in the church of Jesus Christ. You're filled with the spirit of God. You're put into his body. But none of those people in the Old Testament were that. And yet God still called them a church. Well, that's very interesting. And so I'll put a couple of things on the notes. Number one, the church in the wilderness was not saved. The church in the wilderness was not saved in the sense that they weren't believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ to save them from their sin. You guys okay with that statement? And listen, if you, if you, if you think for a second that people in the Old Testament were looking forward to the cross for their salvation, I would like you to open your Bible and prove that. What they were doing was looking at the Mosaic law and asking what's required. And what was required was that they bring an offering, they bring a sacrifice, they make blood atonement in the Old Testament to be right with God at that point in history. We know that all of that points to Christ. But man, if you're in the nation of Israel and you're at Mount Sinai and you're receiving the Ten Commandments, that's what you're expected to, to keep. That's what makes you safe in God's eyes. It doesn't make you saved, but it certainly makes you saved. And so this church in the wilderness was not saved. Number two, they were not spirit-filled. There was no indwelling and sealing of the Holy Spirit of God in the Old Testament. There's no new birth in the Old Testament. Number three, the church in the wilderness was not the body of Christ. But they were a church. But we are called the body of Christ. We are his body. We are members of him. He's members of us. We are one in Christ. But that wasn't the case in the Old Testament. And number four, the church in the wilderness was not bought by the blood of Christ. That's why when they died, they went to Abraham's bosom. They did not go to heaven. Luke chapter 16. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 29, God tells us that God gave his life for the church of God. Acts chapter 20 and verse 29, I don't have it on the screen, but it says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, listen, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. The blood of Christ bought a church, and it's the body of Christ. The Old Testament church in the wilderness, which is the nation of Israel, Jesus had not yet died for. So it couldn't be the same thing. But it is interesting because there's a church in the wilderness preceding a physical land inheritance. And God said, there's a church. And God, God is foreshadowing for us. Again, through these seven churches, I believe there's a dual application that there are going to be a group of called out people in the tribulation that will enter into that millennial kingdom. But it ain't you. It ain't you and it ain't me because we are the body of Christ. And we're going to see that before we get done with Revelation chapter 3 and, and chapter 4. Okay, so this morning, I said all that to say, this morning we're going to start looking at these seven churches. And so if you will, Revelation chapter 2, we got just a few minutes. I know lunch is waiting, but let, let's just spend a few minutes 
together in Revelation chapter 2. We won't, we won't have a lot of uh, points this morning, but look at, look at verses 1 to 7. So the Bible says, Under the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. That's pretty good testimony for a church. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. And, and, and I want you to pay attention to what God does. God gives them commendation. Here's some things you're doing right. But then he says, hey, here's some things that need attention. I, I got something against you. You've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Now to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of of the paradise of God. Man, there's some crazy stuff when you start reading about that church. It's like, man, what? All of a sudden, the tree of life shows up again. You've got to overcome. There's some interesting things, and, and we're going to talk about all that in the next couple of weeks. This morning, let's just start with the basics. Number one, the church that we're talking about this morning is the church of Ephesus. And right out of the bat in this chapter, we have something that's very unique. Notice that this letter is not written to the church at Ephesus. It's written to the angel of the church of Ephesus. That's very interesting. And, and again, as, as we go through these seven churches, every one of these churches, the letter is written to the angel of the seven churches. Okay, so what is, the, what is an angel? And, and some people would say, well, the angel of the seven churches is just the pastor of the seven churches. And I would ask you, have you ever met a pastor? And if you have, you probably didn't think that he was an angel. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you, you, if anybody's less than an angel, it's probably your pastor, right? And uh, I'm joking right now. I'm just trying to get you ready for lunch. But, but you know, that, that, that's, a, that's a common application. The problem with that is we can't find anywhere in Scripture where pastors are, are compared to or likened to angels. Many times the word angel is, is said to be a messenger, and there are times where an angel is a messenger, but more times than not, the word angel literally means appearance. It's an appearance. And, and, so, and so this is really important because when we read about like the angel of the Lord, for instance, well, that is a person, but it's also an appearance. When you read about the angel of the Lord showing up, it's an appearance of the Lord. Does that make sense? It's not just a messenger, but it's an appearance of the Lord himself. In the Old Testament, when the angel of the Lord showed up, it was a pre-incarnate visit of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ showed up. It was the angel, the appearing of the Lord. Okay, well, we know from Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5 that there are things that are represented in heaven that exist on the earth and vice versa. And let me, let me just read Hebrews 8 and verse 5. The Bible says, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, 
As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. And we know in the Old Testament that Moses was given instruction to build the tabernacle. Do you guys remember that? Moses was given instruction to build the tabernacle, the book of Exodus, and God said, this is how big it's going to be. This is how wide it's going to be. This is going to be the size of the curtains. This is how you make the, the altar. This is how you make the Ark of the Covenant. He gave all these instructions to Moses in the mount. But really, God is saying, hey, you pattern that thing on earth after what's already in heaven. There's a heavenly, there's a heavenly tabernacle. And, and that's the real one, by the way. So you make this earthly one after the pattern of what's in heaven. Okay, and, and again, I'm just trying to make the point that, that there is a earthly representation of things that are in heaven already. Does that make sense? You okay with that? Yeah. Ephesians chapter 2, God tells us that we as Christians, we're saved, we're on this earth, but you're already sitting with Jesus Christ in heavenly places. As a matter of fact, Ephesians 2 and verse 6, he's raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So you're here, but you're already there. Spiritually, there's a representation before the Lord of you as a believer in Christ. You're already seated in heavenly places. You say, Jay, how do you, how do you explain that? I can't, other than just believe what the Bible says. And so as we talk about these angels, we know that, that nations have a, a heavenly representation or a celestial representation. We know that people have a celestial representation. It's not, it's not beyond reason to think that the angel of the church is just the, the, the spiritual representation of the church that's before the Lord. As a matter of fact, that church is in Christ's hand a place of security, right? Uh, Revelation 1 and verse 20 says, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. And again, man, he just tells us that these seven stars are the seven angels of the churches and they're in Christ's hand. I don't understand it other than just to believe it. I don't think that the Bible is, is telling us that these, these letters are written to seven pastors or seven messengers. I think they're written to seven churches. That's what they're written to. And these seven candlesticks are the seven churches. And oh, by the way, Christ is in the midst of those seven churches. So this first letter that we're going to study this week and next week is the Church of Ephesus. And you need to know a couple of things about Ephesus. Ephesus was a pretty rough place. It was a wicked, wicked, wicked city. As a matter of fact, it was home to the temple of Diana. If you study the book of Acts, when Paul came through Ephesus in Acts 18 and Acts 19, one of the things he found in the city was that they worshiped this, this pagan goddess, this goddess of fertility named Diana. As a matter of fact, it was common knowledge worldwide if you're an Ephesian, you worship Diana. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it, everybody knew, oh, you're from Ephesus. Oh, you must worship. You must worship. You know, it's kind of like your reputation precedes you type thing. Look at Acts 19 and verse 35. It says, when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not 
how the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter. I mean, there's just some places in this world, man, when you hear of this, the city, there's just some things that come to mind. You know what I'm saying? You hear of New York City, there's probably some images and some things that come to mind. You hear of Los Angeles, there's, there's probably some things that come to mind. And fill in the blank with any other city, man. Some positive, some negative. If you heard of the city of Ephesus, everybody would have said, well, they worship Diana. They worship this pagan goddess. Uh, in Acts chapter 19, again, verses 26 to 27, when, when Paul gets to Ephesus and begins preaching the gospel and making disciples, it ruined the, the, the city's economy because all of the economy was wrapped up in this temple worship of Diana. And man, the gospel comes in and people get saved and they stop buying idols and they stop buying images. You, you know what? Let me just take a rabbit trail right here. We don't have to shut places down. We just need to preach the gospel. If you want all the places that, that continue to uh, appeal to our flesh to go away, start preaching the gospel. Because saved people will stop spending their money there. Because they'll get saved. And they'll realize, I've been worshiping the wrong God. And I'm going to worship the one true God. So Acts chapter 19, listen, uh, the testimony is, uh, and these people in Ephesus were mad because Paul had preached the gospel. They weren't mad because people got saved. They, mad, they were mad because they were losing money. Look what it says in verse 26. Moreover, you see in here that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away how many people? Much people. Saying that there be no gods which are made with hands. That not only this, our craft is in danger and to be set at naught, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised. I mean, her, that temple was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia, listen, and the world worshipeth. Now, that ought to show you the power of the gospel. That ought to show you the power of the gospel, because when the gospel got into that city, the people said, listen, not only is our job in danger because we can't sell the things that we're making because Paul's saying there is no other God that's made with hands. There's only one true God, and he's the creator, maker, sustainer of all things. Not only were they worried about their job, they were worried about their temple. And Paul had no problem seeing God destroy both. And by the way, we have no problem seeing God destroy both. When we preach Christ crucified... It has the power to free the captives, and it has to, the power to destroy the false gods and the false images that humanity bows down to. And we don't have to be apologetic for that, because the power of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so this, this city of Ephesus was a, a spiritual black hole, but man, the light of the gospel broke through. The name Ephesus means fully purposed. If you were just to take the word and, and, and break it down, every city, every name has a meaning in the Bible. And, and this place in Ephesus was fully purposed. This church started in Acts chapter 18. When, when Paul got into Ephesus in Acts chapter 18, verses 18 to 21, the first place Paul went in every city was the synagogue. He would go to the synagogue and begin preaching to the Jews that Christ was the Messiah. 
He went to people that at least had a working knowledge of the scriptures, which is very interesting to me because Paul himself was a Jew. Paul himself was a Pharisee. And he goes into the, uh, he goes into the, the synagogue and he preaches Christ. He reasons with the Jews. In verse 20, it says, when they desired him to tarry their longer time with them, he stuck around. Now, that's not what it says. He consented not. And he was like, no, I got to go somewhere else. He said, I'm out. But we know that the gospel got in in Acts chapter 18 because in Acts chapter 19, when Paul comes back through Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 and verse 1, the Bible says that he found certain disciples. So here's what I know about Ephesus. And here's something that we need to learn from Ephesus. Ephesus was a disciple-making church. Ephesus was a disciple-making church. Because when Paul came back through in Acts chapter 19, he got the gospel in in Acts chapter 18, and then he had to leave. For whatever reason, he didn't stay. But when he came back through, what he found wasn't just Christians. He found disciples. He found disciples of Jesus Christ. And if you don't know what a disciple of Christ is, a disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, you can be saved and not be a disciple of Christ, sadly. And this church had a reputation for making disciples. And so as Paul gets back into this church in Acts chapter 19, if we go a little further down, we find that Paul spent two years with the believers at Ephesus. And I can only imagine what two years with the Apostle Paul would have been like. I can only imagine what three and a half years with Jesus Christ would have been like. Do you understand? Now listen, I know we can only tolerate about an hour on Sunday morning and then we're done. Hello. But man, Paul stayed there for two years. And whatever happened at the end of two years, it was so significant that in Acts chapter 20 and verse 27, when Paul was departing and, and said, I will never see you Ephesian believers again and you pastors at, at, at Ephesus, he says in Acts 20 and verse 27, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. So here's what I know about that church. It's not in your notes, but it's worth writing down. Not only was this a disciple-making church, this was a Bible-preaching and teaching church. They taught the Word of God. And Paul, in two years, had given them the entire counsel of God. Does that mean he preached the entire Bible? I don't know what it means. But what it means is they got all they needed. And let me, let me ask you something. I want to be careful how I ask this. I wonder sometimes when we talk about church, we talk about teaching, preaching. I wonder how, how many times we, we can't distinguish between what we want and what we need. How much Bible is enough? And, and listen, if we would say this morning that we know more Bible than we're living, you don't need more Bible. What you need is more obedience. We need to follow the example of our sister Mia. Here's the next thing. Let me trust the Lord by faith to take this step. And yeah, man, I'm anxious. I'm, I'm uncomfortable. I don't know what's on the other side of this. Well, what's on the other side of that is, is blessing and, and more opportunities to walk with Christ. 
All I know is that in two years, this church had everything that they needed to accomplish the mission at hand, so much so that they were fully purposed to do so. I wonder what we're fully purposed to do as a church. I mean, at some point, we got to ask the question. I mean, at some point, we got to get active with what we heard. We, we have to engage in what we've learned. We have, to, we have to use what we've been given. Paul had two years. Some places he didn't have two years. Some places he had three weeks. The Thessalonians, for example. And so this church was the, the beneficiary of some tremendous teaching and preaching. And because of that, well, they, they were mature in the Lord. And, and they, they needed to be mindful of the mission at hand. Let me just ask you the question, what's the last thing God taught you and are you doing it? What's the last thing that God revealed to you and are you obedient to it? And listen, the answer is not filling in more blanks. If you have the counsel of God that God's given you, then it's time to live it. It's time to live that out by faith. Okay, and then the last point that we'll talk about this morning is as we look at each of these seven churches, we're going to identify the church but then each of these seven churches, we're going to see how Christ has an important impact in that church. There's a characteristic of Christ that is revealed in every one of these churches. And so the Bible says in Revelation chapter 2, concerning the church of Ephesus, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, listen, and who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And so there's two things that, that we need to take away from this, and we'll eat some lunch here in a second. Look, number one, you need to know that Christ talks to his church. Christ talks to his church. These things saith he, and the he is Christ. Can you imagine if we went to the mailbox this week, man, and we opened a letter addressed to Community Fellowship Baptist Church, and man, the one that sent the letter was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Could you imagine that? that? That would be a weighty letter. This is not like Paul the Apostle writing a letter. This is not like John the Apostle writing a letter. These are the Lord's words to us specifically. Well, the truth is God gives us that every Sunday because God's given us a letter. He's written his word. He sent it to us. And every Sunday we have the opportunity to hear from his word. I want you to understand there is a God in this universe, and that God has something to say. And what he says is his words, and we have them, we can understand them, we can receive them and believe them. Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, in, in chapter 1, John hears this voice speaking with him. And the Bible says that he turned and he saw the seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of those candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man. He sees Christ. He hears the word, and he sees Christ. And that's the way it's supposed to work. When Christ talks to his church, he's revealing himself to us. And here's the question. When he speaks, are you turning to see him? Or are you turning away? You see, I think every Sunday, God has something for every person in this place. And I think every Sunday, God has something for every person watching this live stream. And the question is, when he reveals his word to us, are we turning 
to that voice to see Christ, are we turning away from it? Christ speaks to his church. The problem is many times we just don't want to hear it. We're not interested in hearing what the Lord has to say to us. We would rather hear something many times that would tickle our ears or give us a warm fuzzy or give us a a good motivational thing to work on this week. And those are fine, whatever. But I would rather just hear from Christ. Like, Like when I call my wife on her phone and my kids answer the phone, I love my kids. Do you know what I'm saying? I love my kids. I love my girls. But sometimes they'll answer the phone. And I'll talk to them. But really, I want to talk to my wife. Like, I want to hear her voice. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm, I want to hear her voice. I love my girls. But I want to talk to her. And, and it's the same thing in our relationship with Christ. We need to be willing and ready and receptive to the Word of God in our life. Christ talks to his church. He has something for us. The question is, are we turning to that or turning away from it? The second point, we're done. You need to understand that not only Christ talks to his church, but number two, Christ walks in the midst of his church. God tells us in Revelation 1 and verse 15 that Christ's feet are like fine brass as they burned in a furnace. His voice is as the sound of many waters. And we talked a couple of weeks ago about how brass takes us back to the book of Exodus and how brass is what the brazen altar was made out of. Those brass feet represent judgment because there had to be judgment for sin. Those those feet of Christ are, are what are going to split the Mount of Olives in half at his second coming. Those feet of brass are going to crush the serpent's head. And those feet of brass walk in the midst of his church. Now, now there's an Old Testament story. It's, it's kind of interesting, kind of weird. You ever read the Bible and you run across a weird story like, what is that? Okay, if you have never done that, you just don't read the Bible. That's the bottom line. Deuteronomy 23. Go back to Deuteronomy 23, and, and uh, the nation of Israel is embattled against their enemy. And this is a weird verse, man, and all the teenagers are probably going to love this. This is fantastic. There's nothing like bathroom jokes to really spice up the moment. Deuteronomy 23, verse 12, it says, Thou shalt have a place also without the camp, whether thou shalt go forth abroad, and thou shalt have a paddle upon thy weapon. Just get the imagery. And it shall be when thou wilt ease thyself abroad. That's King James language for going to the restroom. Thou shalt dig therewith and shall turn back and cover that which cometh from thee. <laughs> I know, man. I didn't write it, Landon. It's in there. I don't know, dude. It is, man. It's, it's horrible. There's just no getting around it. We're going to practice this after lunch. <laughs> so, <laughs> again, man, time of war, time of battle, God's given instruction. Hey, just so you know, man, when you have the urge, dig a hole and then cover it up. It's like, why is that even in there? Well, the next verse, here's why. Verse 14, for the Lord thy God walketh, listen, in the midst of thy camp. And here's why he's walking in the midst of your camp, to deliver you 
and to give up your enemies before you, therefore shall thy camp be what? Holy. That he see, listen, no unclean thing in thee and turn away from thee. Now, again, I know that's an interesting story. For Israel in the Old Testament, Christ was walking in the midst of the camp. And he was walking to give them victory and to give them deliverance. And he wanted to make sure that the camp was holy. And I'm telling you, those fine feet of brass, Christ wants to walk in his church. But you need to listen to me right now. What he wants to see in his church is holiness. There's some things that he doesn't want to see in his church. Do you hear me? There's some things that are unacceptable in his sight, in his church. And listen, we, we need deliverance from our enemy. And listen, if you're saved, you're delivered from hell. But you still got a flesh, and you still got the devil, and you still got this world to contend with. You still have some enemies that need to be defeated. And the surefire way to make sure that the Lord does not stay in the camp of your life or in the camp of this church is to live in a way that's unholy. And to have unclean things that are present in our life. Because God says when he sees those things, he's going to turn away. He's going to turn away. You know, I want us to be a church that Christ is comfortable walking in the midst of. And I want to be the type of Christian. And listen, there's grace and forgiveness, man. But I want to be the type of Christian that, it, that as Christ is walking in the midst of my life, he doesn't have to watch where he steps. And he shouldn't have to watch where he steps in this place. You hear me? You, you guys remember back in Genesis chapter 3, in the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned? They're hiding from God. But I want you to see in the very beginning, even in the beginning, Christ was walking in the midst of that garden. He's walking because he wants to forgive. He wants fellowship. He wants worship. He wants a relationship with his creation. And instead of turning to the voice of God, Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of God because they were in their sin. They hid themselves amongst the tree of the garden. Man. Christ is walking in the garden and there's some stuff he has to be careful that he doesn't step in. Sin, right? So listen, as we close, just consider two things. Number one, consider this church of Ephesus. We're not done with Ephesus. We're going to come back next week. But consider this church of Ephesus. They received a written message from Jesus Christ himself. And can you just consider us as a church? We've received a written message from Jesus Christ himself. We have his word. And listen, it is a privilege to receive something from Christ himself. So we need to heed his message. For some of you this morning, the message that you need to heed is, number one, you need to get saved. You need to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to realize, like Nia testified earlier, like many people in this room have testified, that I am a sinner separated from God through my sin. And only the finished work of Christ can save me. Some of you need to hear that message this morning. 
For some of us this morning that we're saved, we need to understand that Christ still wants to give us a message. We need to get serious about time and his word because it's a privilege. If you're reading your Bible because it's a burden, you have the wrong attitude. You don't have it figured out. Let me just get through my chapters. Let me just get through 10 minutes. Let me get through five minutes. Let me, let me, let me just check off the list that I read my Bible today and, and you couldn't answer at the end of the day what God showed you, what you read, what you learned. Listen, you have a messed up relationship with Christ. God wants to give you his word. Quit making excuses and quit making it a duty. Develop a love relationship with the one that saved you from your sin. What a privilege we have to have the Word of God. Number two, it's a privilege, not only that God talks to us, but it's a privilege that He walks in our midst. That's a privilege. That's His presence. So, so we need to be mindful of that. I wonder as Christ walks through this place, just like He walked through the battlefield, what would He find? Would, would He find soldiers trusting in Him for victory? with weapons in their hand? Would he find soldiers ready to fight? Would he find a camp that's holy? Or would, be there, would there be some places where he couldn't step? Because, man, we've left some messes. And those messes are uncovered. And we haven't dealt with them the way God told us to deal with them. And, and we don't hide our sin in the ground. We come to Christ and confess it. And, and seek restoration and forgiveness. Listen, would Christ find our place, this place, in uncleanness? And would he turn away his presence from us? And that's for our church, and it's also for our individual lives. And if you feel like you don't have a re relationship with Christ, and his presence is not real, could you ask yourself the question, is it because of my sin and my unwillingness to, to confess and forsake that sin? You have an enemy that's seeking to kill and destroy you. You need Christ's power to gain victory. If Christ walked through this church like he walked through the garden, what would he find? Would he find obedient sons and daughters that want to spend time in fellowship with him and enjoying the provision and the fruit that God has provided for us? Or would he find rebellious sons and daughters hiding themselves, turning from the voice of God? Whatever your situation is this morning, Christ wants you to turn to him. Christ wants you to turn to him. It's as simple as that. If you're lost this, day, this morning, you can turn to Christ through the gospel. And you can settle the issue once, or, once and for all of your sin and your eternity, because it can be secure in Christ. And as a Christian, you can turn to Christ at his word. And if there's a mess in your life that needs to be addressed, ask him to forgive you. Now, we're so prideful in, in 21st century Christianity that we don't think we ever have to ask for forgiveness outside of salvation. But I think God, walking in the midst of his church, expects some holiness. And so we ought to have that desire. Amen. All right. We're going to pray, and then I'm going to give us some instruction uh, after we pray for lunch. But I want to just ask you to bow your heads and consider what we've heard this morning.